Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This time we're going to be talking about the dog and the wolf and removing the collar. So in recent posts and episodes, I've been down on technology. But before I go off and join the local Amish community, I want to discuss one of Aesop's fables. And this one is called The Dog and the Wolf. And here's the story. A starving wolf meets a healthy dog and the wolf compliments the dog on his sleek appearance. The dog describes his life of ease and invites the wolf to join him. As they walk on their way, the wolf asks why the fur on the dog's neck is worn away. And the dog replies that it's merely caused by the collar he has to wear at home. And the wolf then leaves, declaring that a full belly is a poor price to pay for liberty. And the the lesson from this fable, as fables always have, is better starve free than to be a fat slave. Or another way of saying it, there is nothing worth so much as liberty. So the wolf is walking away from this easy life that the dog has because the dog has to wear a collar and is in control by the human uh, throughout his life. So. Could there be a more real-world example of this exchange than in dogs themselves that we see today? Um, pets today are in a strange state. The comfort and ease for them has proven a slippery slope for those first wolf pups as the table scraps they consumed led to a long transaction that could never be undone. The temptation to lay by the fire and get table scraps has resulted in Pugs and chihuahuas now being dressed up in costumes and carried around in handbags or dressed up for Halloween and all kinds of um, strange things that we see with dogs. Uh, suffice it to say that future generations will look back at the American moment in history in confusion, I would suspect, as our pet obsession must be one of the strangest episodes in human history. I can even imagine history textbooks in the future showing a picture of say uh, circa 2003 Paris Hilton and her handbag dog or of Boo the Pomeranian which was known as the world's cutest dog may he rest in peace um, those would be seen as exemplifications of 21st century America um, as an era of surplus that allowed this massive unhitching of our mind from reality uh, the modern marvel is less about dogs than really the people that own them. Um, one last distraction here. I recall in my history textbooks sidebars about Marie Antoinette's cake uh, comment or the debauchery of Roman binge and purge parties. So I can imagine the future textbooks having a dog dressed up as a flower or as a hot dog would make a good visual instruction of kind of this era in American history as sort of absurd. Um, as history repeats, and it repeats patterns, not the same people and names, but we see patterns in history, we see the same story of the dog and the wolf. The wolf struggles, but never has to wear a sweater or booties, um, and nor does a human follow the, the wolf around with a leash, and the wolf doesn't have to listen to a human talking to it, or wonder why the person is waiting with a plastic bag to pick up his uh, poop as he as he reaches the grass. So the wolf lives a very different life from a dog. And the fable is really about free will. 
and two different kinds of freedom, which I've talked about on other episodes. Uh, this fable is about which master do you serve? And it throws one of the great questions into the mix as who do you choose to serve? Uh, really, the question is, what do you serve? Uh, what do you choose to do with your time and days? Uh, to what have you surrendered? Uh, and for us, where does your money go? Or for what are you saving for? Um, how does, what does money fly out of your pocket to buy? That's how you know what you've chosen, what you serve. Uh, and the reality is you must surrender to something because that's what free will entails. You cannot be both the wolf and the dog at the same time. As always, you cannot go both left and right. You cannot go both up and down. Choices must be made. And this problem teleports us right to Jesus in his words when he says, man cannot serve two masters. Um, and he's talking about God and wealth or God and mammon is what he says. The same, in the same, same instance, the wolf cannot be fat and warm by serving the human master or also live true to its nature and be free and hungry out in the wild. Likewise, if you surrender to God, you reject the world and give up its table scraps. If you surrender to the world, you reject God, but you get to lay by the fire. In either case, only one option can really be selected. What the wolf sees is that if you surrender to comfort, the wolf would be turning away from his natural self. Every choice requires a selection, and making a choice means making a rejection of the alternative. If you surrender to perceived pleasure, then you are rejecting a perceived pain. But sometimes our perception of what is pain and what is pleasure is an error. And that's the never-ending game we play. We play the game of how can we avoid suffering? But the more important question is this. How do we perceive or receive suffering? It's a matter of what we think suffering is and what it means. And the great trick here in the fable is being pulled on the dog, not the wolf. What is perceived as an escape from pain and struggle does not actually remove pain and struggle from that dog's life. The trade-off for table scraps results in being kenneled or leashed for about 23 hours a day while the pet owner lives out his or her life. The perceived freedom from suffering leads to a new kind of suffering and it's a spiritual suffering for the dog because the essence of the dog's purpose gets buried inside the house. He can't leave. He's stuck. He's on a leash even when he's outside. He can't chase things. He can't do anything that a dog or a wolf would normally do. The dog that is a pet is never truly a dog in the sense of wanting to just run and play and roll and he gets scolded for everything that he does that is doggy-like. Because every instinct the animal has is molded as the owner desires. The dog has the shape of a dog. He looks like a wolf. He has the mind of a dog, but he thinks like a wolf. Uh, but he must live out this artificial, non-doggy lifestyle. The instinct still thumps in the heart of a dog, like when the doorbell rings or when the urge rises to uh, mount up on a pillow or when a, sub a suburban rabbit darts out from behind a garden gnome or something. But none of these actions of the dog are allowed to play out because the owner won't allow it. It's a, it's a pet. Um, it's, it's caged. It's imprisoned. So the only action allowed is really the adoration of the master, the human, in exchange for a treat. And that is the transaction that has been signed and agreed to between pet and pet owner. So in trading one part of dogness, that of the desire to eat, all other parts of 
the dog's dogness have been given up and suppressed. And it's a cheap exchange in reality. It actually reminds me of Esau and Jacob in Genesis a little bit, where he trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. Um, now, when Aesop was writing, I can only assume that people were not trying to fulfill their dog's life as if it were a human child, although maybe they were in the upper classes, I don't know. I don't think the Greeks were spending thousands of dollars on pet hotels and medical insurance for dogs, but and not building elaborate dog parks and doggy daycare centers so that the dog could attempt to have the best of both worlds, of both dogness and petness. Um, I should note here, as I like to refer to Plato's Republic, chapter 8, there is a curious paragraph about how in late-stage democracy, right before democracy devolves into tyranny, that Socrates mentions pets begin to take on the likeness of their mistresses. That's a quote from chapter 8 of Plato's Republic. And he also mentions that animals in the street will not be ordered to move out of the way for people as animals have been elevated in status to that of people. And everything is, quote, bursting with liberty, even the pets. So this may be prophetic for us today, as at Halloween there are many pet owners with matching outfits of their dogs. And just recently, I saw a dog in a cart at the grocery store where the child is supposed to be. And I often see dogs that are definitely not service animals in, um, in, in grocery stores now, which is really strange. Um, so Plato may have nailed it for this era of the 21st century. Now, the dog and the wolf fable is a relevant parable for our time because as technology has satisfied our every sensory desire, we now suffer the spiritual malady of slavery to comfort. And one thing that fascinates me in this respect is the nature lovers that I know. Um, the rednecks and the hippies are actually very close to one another and they just don't realize it. Uh, one tends to think of the other as a monster or a fool, the Bambi killer and the tree hugger. <laughs> but they both understand something very deep in our instincts. They are both trying to remove the collar of modernity and technology. The hunter and the eco-warrior are really not that far apart. They are both trying to unmodern themselves in the woods. Uh, if you could sew them together somehow, you have the hunter-gatherer uh, restored uh, fully. But more specifically, together they are like the wolf, choosing the kind of freedom that brings a certain suffering, in quotes, but a suffering that fits our nature. So hunters will choose to go off the grid in a pilgrimage for an elk or a bear. Eco-gatherers will seek out 30-day hikes on desolate trails. This is both, both of these are attempts to take off the collar of our modern world of technology, of what we've traded for being separated from nature. So many hunters and gatherers of this type live on cul-de-sacs and sit tethered to desks, like me, basking in the unnatural light of screens that suck the soul out of you. And spiritual ennui and lack of meaning is the suffering today. It's a spiritual suffering. That's our, that's our great war, as to quote Fight Club, the great war of today is not a war like World War II, it is a spiritual war. So to insert Jesus here, in all cases, the question of suffering is not, why is there suffering in the world, but rather this one. What am I going to do with this suffering? And I'll refer you to a couple of videos, if you click on the article, to Father Mike Schmitz, and there's another one by Bishop Robert Barron, to tell you the meaning of suffering. And that's really important to understand 
what does the meaning of suffering take on when you look at it through the, through the, uh, through the eyes of Christ. But in summary, Jesus came to transform suffering. He did not come to end suffering. Not yet. He came to show us the redemptive part of suffering. And once you understand that this is possible, your perception of suffering is completely inverted from what the, the modern world tells us, from psychology to marketing to internet influencers. Those, those groups are clueless as to what Jesus accomplished on the cross because they have an inverted worldview compared to Jesus. The simple commandments to love God and love others never contained any promise of zero suffering. The saying, you deserve to be happy, is not from Christ. Um, it, it's, if you think that's what he meant, please refer back to the Gospels and review the brutal death of Jesus himself and his immediate followers and the thousands and thousands of martyrs that came after that. He does not take away our suffering. He takes away our sin and defeats the devil. That's what he's doing. This is the important distinction to understand. And if you don't believe in sin, then you can never understand the message of Jesus. A prerequisite to the gospel is knowing that you are a sinner. And as our academic and marketing experts keep taking things known to be sinful off the shelf and calling them good, this leads many people away from the joy of finding the message of the gospel. Why? Because if you don't think random sex or lying or cheating or hating or presumption or despair is a sin, how on earth could you ever understand what Jesus is doing for you spiritually? The message that he takes away our sins only makes sense at all if you realize that you have sin that needs to be taken away. A lifetime of slogans and campaigns elevating ourselves and denying any wrongdoing gives cataracts to us so we're blind. We are way beyond seeing the speck of dust in another's eye while ignoring the wood plank in our own because we think we have no sin unless it affects someone else. Among the things no longer considered a problem are uh, watching porn, getting drunk, masturbation, getting high, because we have been duped into the feeling that if it doesn't hurt anyone else, how is it bad? And this is despite the fact that all of those things most certainly hurt ourselves and every single relationship we touch. Every marriage where one partner or another is looking at porn, that is damaging the marriage and you cannot even pretend that it's not because you're turned away from the other person. Any marriage where someone is drinking, any marriage where someone is getting high, that's turning away from the other person. That's a fact. You can pretend it's not hurting anyone else, but it's hurting plenty of other people. Now, since nothing is deemed profane now, we see no need for healing, which is the root word of savior. Savior means to heal, the salve, to heal. Instead, instead, what is the enemy? The enemy of our lives becomes discomfort. Anything that disrupts our comfort of 70 degrees, totally, total homeostasis. We need anything that upsets our feelings or blocks our desires is the modern definition of sin. And that is not the definition of sin that Jesus is going by at all in any sense. Um, it is not our own thoughts or actions at fault. Now we blame those who differ in opinion. And we can lust all day long and no longer consider it adultery. And you can claim to be Christian and at the same time completely ignore these words from Matthew chapter 5, uh, 27, 28. You have, heard it. you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery 
with her in his heart. Let me read that again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Jesus speaking. Now, the only way a professed Christian man can allow his hand and eye to scroll porn on his phone after knowing those words from the gospel, and if he is not making an effort to stop scrolling by seeking confession and doing frequent examination of consciences, the only way this is possible is if his profession of Jesus as God is said without belief. He cannot believe in Jesus, read those words, and continue to try to do those, to keep doing what he's doing, uh, viewing porn or, or, or lusting after another woman. Um, in other words, he can only be scrolling porn if he is merely professing faith for expediency and social acceptance. Because if you know and truly believe that Jesus is God, then those sentences from Matthew should convict you where you sit. A man can only be professing faith in Christ as the second person of the Trinity and simultaneously scrolling porn without remorse if he is lying about the profession of faith. And this goes for various sins, but the most prevalent among men today is this addiction to porn, probably worse than alcohol or drugs or anything else. And many, many men with this problem will bemoan the state of the world in regards to other sins, while this plank in their own eye from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, juts out of their own eyes um, as their harmless act of scrolling causes the slow death of their relationships as it withers and dies while they scroll in the night. I failed to understand why regular confession and doing a proper examination of conscience before stepping into the confessional was important until I began to understand that what sins you must keep admitting in confession become a burden and saying them out loud every month or every week is a great incentive to stop doing the thing you wish you wouldn't do. And I'm reminded of Jim Carrey in the movie Liar Liar when he's a lawyer who can't tell the truth. He has to take a phone call from a criminal client who is in jail once again and uh, Jim Carrey screams his legal advice into the phone and he says, stop breaking the law, asshole. So when you hear yourself going to confession time again, time and again, to admit a fault that you can't quit, eventually it begins to register that I need to clean up my side of the street. I need to clean up my side of the street, not my neighbor's side of the street. I get tired of cleaning the same street of the same garbage that I put myself out on the street. That's why frequent confession works, because you keep doing it. And if you're honest about it, you will get tired of saying that. Why am I doing this? Why can't I stop doing this? Uh, speaking the words out loud to someone else, even if the sin can be absolved, is an enormously powerful incentive to stop breaking the law. And if you love Jesus, you will want to stop breaking the law. That's the miraculous thing. The law alone doesn't make you want to stop doing it. It's when you love Jesus, when you love God, that you want to stop breaking the law. God's law. Uh, part of the miracle of the sacrament of reconciliation is that the grace of God grows. And even if it takes years or decades, if you keep trying, you will stop doing the thing that is so difficult for you to stop. So prayer, confession, Eucharist, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, there's a saying, in this world you'll have trouble, but take courage, take heart. Uh, this allows us to give ourselves up as an offering to God, just like just like Jesus showed us, without making sense of all suffering. 
I feel like most miss this point. In taking away our sin, we are then free to be our true selves. We can drop all the fig leaves we wear to hide ourselves. And those are all elaborate ruses to hide our fear and our pride and to cover our wounds. Now, in the fable, the wolf is naked. No collar means no fig leaves. The wolf chooses his true nature. Thereby, the wolf lives a kind of redemptive suffering, while the dog chases a mirage, a life without suffering, and then suffers a spiritual uh, des desolation of being a housebound animal. There is no life without suffering, period. Obviously, wolves in real life don't know they are choosing a redemptive suffering, but the wolf in the fable is not about a wolf. He's a stand-in for us, for humans with free will who face the choice of comfortable slavery versus purposeful living. And this should set off Old Testament alarm bells because the entire book of Exodus is here. The exact struggle being faced in the desert is the desire to return to the comfortable slavery in Egypt. This happens time and again in Exodus and really throughout the rest of the Old Testament as the people of Israel want to return to simpler ways, return to idolatry, return to the flesh pots of Egypt, which just means comfortable food having food and a place to sleep while they're in the desert. And lastly, might I add that non-believers never get bent out of shape when animals start talking in Aesop, but they sure get irritated when the serpent talks in the Garden of Eden. So I have many thoughts on why that is, but I'm going to get way off the beaten path if I start talking about talking animals between Aesop and the Bible. I'll just leave a link here on this article. Um, for the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 385 to 409. It says a lot about uh, suffering and, and it fills in the gaps of this problem that I've left out regarding this, the decision over who with our lives we choose to serve. And speaking of what we choose to serve, the wolf and the dog both have it wrong, really. Why? Because Neither of them gets to the heart of the matter, as far as humans go, since they are stand-ins for us. In the dog's life, a bargain is struck to become a servant of a being in the world, a human being. In the wolf's life, the wolf must be entirely self-reliant, or perhaps reliant on a pack of wolves. Now, fortunately, we are neither dog nor wolf. We have intellect and free will. We have a third option, but it must be chosen. Uh, it cannot be taken by force or shoved upon us by fear. This third option can only be granted with your consent and not by bargaining and not by self-will, skill, or merit. You make a choice and what you choose to follow and believe is not just a head game or wordplay, it manifests in you. It, even if you think you are only a dabbler or taking a casual interest, that which you consume will merge into you in ways subtle and unforeseen. You start to act like who you admire or what you admire. You become what you worship. You are what you eat. You are what you drink. Choose wisely. Enough of me talking about it. Let's look at what Jesus himself says about this to topic. This is from John 15 verses 4 and 5. Remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. Here's another quote from John chapter 6, verse 35. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And here's the last one from John chapter 6, verses uh, starting at verse 53. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. So what does all of this tell you? It's a simple set of instructions. And from anyone else, it would sound crazy. The thing about Jesus is, if anyone else other than God was saying these things, it would be crazy. It would be crazy. And the only way it makes sense is if God came here in the incarnation himself. So what do we do? We drink from the true vine. We eat the bread of life. We turn and believe and receive the Eucharist as often as possible. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back another time with another episode.